Welcome to the inaugural edition of the College Faith Podcast, brought to you by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Stan Wallace. And to kick things off, today's episode will provide an overview of how to love God with heart and mind during the university years. My guest today is Dr. J.P. Moreland, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University, in La Mirada, California. J.P. has spoken and debated on over 175 college campuses around the country, and authored or co-authored 30 books and published over 70 articles in academic journals. And in 2019, he was named one of the 50 most influential living philosophers. Today, we will be talking about themes in his popular book, Love Your God With All Your Mind, The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul. J.P., welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Stan, for having me with you. You wrote a book over 20 years ago entitled Love Your God With All Your Mind, The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul. I'm curious why you wrote the book then and if it's still as relevant today or maybe more relevant today. Those are two really, really good questions. I came to Christ in 1968 as a chemistry major at the University of Missouri. And then I joined the staff of what was called Campus Crusade in those days, now Crew. And I started sharing my faith and uh, discipling converts and, and believers. And uh, I began to realize that people weren't buying the claims of Christ. They didn't think they made sense. So uh, I was going to pastors and uh, uh, just talking to them about you know, some of these issues, and it became clear to me that that pastors aren't trained to value uh, teaching people why they believe what they believe. In fact, they're threatened by it, because if they don't know their stuff, they are fearful of losing their authority in the church. Uh, and so uh, it became clear to me that we were that are the way we were going about uh, winning people to Christ and discipling people uh, was going to win a straggler here and there, but it wouldn't make much of an impact for Christ on the culture that we lived in. And so I saw what was missing was an, an important emphasis on cultivating the life of the Christian mind and teaching people how to think uh, worldviewishly, um, taking questions that people have seriously and trying to furnish answers because this matters. Uh, we are largely at the mercy of our ideas. And uh, as our ideas go, we tend to go. And so it's important how we think. And the Bible, I don't want to go into this, but the Bible's filled with exhortations uh, about, you know, reasoning together and, and, and thinking as a Christian. So uh, I wrote the book as an attempt to, to do a couple of things. First was to restore to our community the value of having a Christian mind and of making that part of our ministry, not all of it, 
uh, some people like me are called to emphasize that, that every single believer is called to, to nurture their ability to think well as a Christian as, as best they can. Given their setting, some are stay-at-home moms or dads, and they don't have time to do a lot of reading. I get that, but we can all do. We can all improve. Well, the book I think has had a, a major impact. It's uh, sold well, and um, it obviously met a need. But the problem is, in regard to your second question about is there still a need for such a thing? Uh, it, it's a good news and bad news situation, Stan. The good news is that there, there is now more literature, more podcasts, more uh, resources available to the to the church than ever before in my than I've ever seen in my lifetime. Uh, there are treasures being written and being um, put on uh, downloadable uh, vehicles that you can listen to books on tape. On, on podcasts, on websites. I mean, goodness gracious. Uh, the, the, the bad news is that we, we live in a culture that has become utterly anti-intellectual. And the reason for that is we've become secular. And if God doesn't exist and, and the secular worldview is true, then thinking only matters in science, but not the rest of life. And so in its place, uh, we what matters now is feeling and satisfying my desires. And so we live in a culture now where desire satisfaction and how I feel about something uh, affects my behavior. And, how, and, and thinking about something carefully is kind of not very valued anymore. And so it is, uh, it is crucial that this become reemphasized. So it's good news what you say about these days, so much more being published. But I've seen the same thing about less and less true engagement with issues. So I'm interested to know how you think students can fight against that temptation as they go off to college. You bet. <clears throat> I'll start with a story. David Kinneman is now the president of the Barna Research uh, Group. Uh, they're up there with Pew and other the major players in, that do polling and research. And uh, he published an article a few years ago on the reasons why uh, uh, young people are abandoning not only the church, but the Bible and Christianity in, in general, maybe even belief in God. So they asked, why are people leaving the church in these younger uh, generations, uh, like in droves? And the answer, they gave seven answers, and I believe six of them had to do, believe it or not, with life-of-the-mind issues. They were shocked because they thought maybe there was a need for more small group connectedness or, or uh, you know, deeper and richer worship. And I believe in all that, no doubt about it. But I think we're hitting that out of the park right now. I think we're doing a pretty good job of that. But it was things like when I ask a question in church, I'm shunned. Uh, I feel embarrassed for having doubts and questions. 
when people do answer my questions, the answers aren't very well thought out or they're not just frankly not helpful. The church isn't keeping up with science. The, the church is simplistic in the way it treats sexuality. We need a deeper set of teachings on that. And I could go on. And so uh, for the parents uh, and for students that are listening to this, the truth of the matter is that if you're a student, there's a pretty good chance down the road, if, if you're a Christian, you're going to get divorced. Uh, you'll, uh, you'll be doing something that has a line of work that has very little meaning to you because the statistics are demonstrating that as time goes on, unbelievers and believers are pretty much the same. Uh, there's not a major difference between those two subgroups of society. And the reason is because you cannot sustain deep commitment to Christ if you only think that you can have feelings or beliefs about Jesus, but you can't actually know that he's real, that he rose from the dead, that there really is a heaven and hell, that God exists, and that the Bible is reliable. If you can't know these things, and knowing doesn't mean that you're 100% certain, uh, you can know things and still have questions and doubts, but knowing basically means that you believe something true, and it's true, and you have good, a really good basis. You know why you believe what you believe, and it's people who know why they believe that are, that are going the distance with Christ, which is not a 100-meter dash, but it's cross-country, you might say, and they're, they're looking back on their lives, and they're saying that I, I would not have chosen anything else. This has been, with all the pain and suffering I've had, it's still uh, the thing that has sustained me, because I know at the end of the day that this really is true. And so this is uh, very important for students to recognize that they are going to have to learn some basic things about why they should believe Christianity. They need to get their questions and doubts answered and know where to go to, to get that kind of help. The subtitle of your book actually says that very well, The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul. And you make this point early in the book that many believers aren't encouraged to think about how their faith relates to everything else. But there are some who would argue that faith and reason are opposed to one another. And so the more you reason, the less you can have faith. How would you respond to that? Well, that's another good question. I was actually speaking years ago. It was in this gymnasium, and it was an evangelistic event. So there were a lot of unbelievers at this large meeting. And after I gave, I gave a case for why I think God exists and why I think Christianity is actually true. And then we had a Q&A period with microphones where people could come up and ask questions. First two people were obviously non-Christians and they asked good questions and I did, you know, did my best to answer them. Third person came up, and it was a sister in the Lord, and she said, Dr. Moreland, I'm really troubled by your talk. Well, I said, I'm so, so sorry, ma'am. What, what bothered you? And she said, well, 
if you prove that God exists, then what room are you leaving for faith? And this is the very view of faith you're expressing here. And this shows that it really is out there. But I was trying to show that you could know God exists based on good reasons, better than those against God. Okay, but, but getting to the deeper issue, um, faith today uh, has, has changed in its definition from the way it has been defined for probably 1950 years. And then around the middle of the 20th century began to change. And what faith means today has been stated recently by uh, Michael Shermer, who is the editor of the Skeptic magazine and one of the leading atheistic humanists. And he said, faith is believing something in the complete absence of evidence or argumentation. So faith, then, is a choice to simply believe something that's, that's, as far as reasons go, it's arbitrary. So your basis for the choice might be feeling or that you like uh, the, Christ the Christian message or you feel a need for help and this, you might as well give this a shot. And, and by the way, those are all legitimate, but um, on this view... If you have reason for something, then you don't have any room for faith. As reason goes, faith shrinks. So it's a zero-sum game. This is not the way faith has always been defined. And the way it's always been defined, biblically and commonsensically, will, will really help our listeners here. And, and, and faith has always been defined as confidence or trust in what we have good grounds to believe is true. So uh, on that definition, faith is placing confidence in something based on your reasons for doing so. And so there, as reason grows, your ability to trust or have faith grows because you are um, better able to let go and trust because you know deep down in your mind that you, you you're not being a fool uh, or stepping into the dark this is you're stepping out on a foundation so now just think about this suppose that um, I got a car uh, for uh, a friend of mine and I and I just told him that this one's gonna get you get the job done for you I know you're you know, your routine going to work and so on. And so he says, well, did you uh, have the car checked out? And I said, well, well no, uh, it is a used car, but I'm just, I'm just choosing to believe that it, that it works. Well, let's be honest about it. If there was no evidence at all that this car wasn't damaged, yeah. It'd be kind of hard to, to jimmy up faith in it or trust. But what if I gave you good, a good solid evidence based on a, a, a car mechanic's report? I showed you that I'd had it tested out and that, boy, there are, we actually know that the thing's been repaired and it works. Now, does this remove your ability to place trust in the car? No. 
In fact, it actually supports your ability to trust in the car, and it will be easier for you to trust in it if you have a lot of good reasons for knowing that this car is worthy of trust. It, it's been checked out and it works. So in my view, the same is true of God. Now, you, you, you will notice, Stan, that there are times where people are called to place trust in God without having a clue as to what he's doing. Abraham sacrificing Isaac is a good example of that. But you have to understand that in those cases, uh, there, the uh, God's calling people to trust him in the dark uh, is based upon what they've known about God for a good period of time as they've walked with him and learned about him. So even something like that is based upon knowing things about God that he's trustworthy, even if you don't know exactly what's going to happen in this situation, your ability to trust is still based on the fact that you know God loves you. He's not going to mess you up. And so you don't know what the heck's going on. But at the end of the day, you figure he's got to have a bigger plan for this. So that's, that's my view. Faith is based on reason, they're not opposites. Well, that's a really helpful distinction, because I think people do get hung up on passages that seem to ask people to do things that uh, that seem absurd. And you gave the classic example of Abraham and Isaac, but that makes sense. Within the broader context of everything Abraham knew about God, it gives that text a different significance. And I think that's something that's important to keep in mind. You actually make a distinction in the book that I think ties into this between a faith tradition and a knowledge tradition. I think that's very important for students to understand. So could you tease that out a little bit more and help us understand how students will encounter that distinction as they head off to college? I sure will. A faith tradition is uh, a history of a set of ideas about some topic that everyone acknowledges is not supported by reason, but it's supported by the contemporary definition of faith. People have chosen, just chosen to accept this tradition. An example of that would be uh, the history of uh, alchemy or, or the history of palm reading or reading a horoscope uh, there, there really is no good evidence that horoscopes accurately predict your, your future. Uh, people who think they do engage in selective observation. They, they notice the times when it does, but then they forget all the times when it was wrong. And so I would say that uh, the history of the development and use of horoscopes, let's just say, would be a faith tradition. It's, it's just a history of people who've chosen for no good reason to accept this because maybe it met a need in their lives or whatever. A knowledge tradition would be something like a chemistry or the study of, let's say, American history. As time has gone on, we've learned more and more and gained more and more knowledge about 
details of American history that we didn't know before. We've made discoveries of letters and newspaper articles that were written in the early days and so on. Uh, in chemistry, we've done the same thing. Now, what that means is that if something is a knowledge tradition, then it becomes a part of public understanding. Those who have knowledge stand, or at least those who are perceived to have knowledge, are given the right to define reality for the rest of us and to speak with authority in public. They also have the boldness to do so. And I'll give you an example. A dentist is, is given the authority by, our, by the American people to go anywhere to any group and speak with authority about a certain aspect of reality that he's an authority about, namely teeth and gums and how they work. And so a dentist can get up and say certain things about molars and thus and so, and we listen very carefully. And he has that right. Plus, to be honest with you, he has the boldness. He doesn't care where he goes because he knows why he holds the things he's going to say. Uh, now, if, if a dentist simply said, I'll be honest with you, I don't know a thing about molars, but I got a lot of very deep feelings about them and faith commitments, uh, I'm not going to let him within 100 miles of my mouth. And, and so it is people who have knowledge that, that are given the authority to define reality, and they have the boldness and the confidence to do so. Stan, one of the reasons people don't witness is they don't know why they believe what they believe. So when a student goes to college, they have to realize that they're going to be given the message over and over again that religion is about faith traditions. They're your traditions. They're things your parents passed on to you. And, you know, it's not like anybody knows if any of this is true. In fact, probably it isn't. But even if it is true, uh, no one has any idea whether it is or not. It's just something that this history of people have chosen to accept for their community. And and so you're going to get your Christian ideas constantly subject to ridicule and to abuse, and they will be marginalized. Uh, they won't be allowed to be part of conversations in the classroom. A student that I knew uh, was a believer and in this class on human sexuality at the University of Vermont, they talked about abortion, and she wanted to give some arguments against abortion uh, from uh, certain biblical views about the image of God. And the teacher said, well, you're a Christian, and you're disqualified from this conversation, I'm sorry, but you're biased, and you can't really be objective with the facts, and religious arguments don't mean anything because they're based upon just kind of a blind faith. That is why it's important for students to know why they believe what they believe and to prepare themselves for college, even going to Christian colleges. There are many Christian colleges that have drifted to the left, and they have professors that ridicule the Bible, even in Christian colleges. 
So this is a very, very important thing. And Barna says people who don't know why they believe are leaving. And that's just simply a fact that's been established by polling and research. We will return to our discussion in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Since you're listening to this podcast, you probably have a child, relative, or friend preparing to be or currently a university student. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them when they arrive on campus and walk with them during their university years. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn more and see how you can be part of equipping more professors to be salt and light on a campus near you and worldwide. And now, back to the show. So you're saying, for the Christian student, the first step is realizing the Christian faith is a knowledge tradition, and then having a sense of what the knowledge is that they ought to have about the tradition. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the good news, Stan, is that um, there are people and resources out there that can help students find answers to their questions. So there are two implications of this, if I may share them. Uh, First of all, if a student is in a, let's say a a secular high school or a college and they're getting, the professor is saying things that are undermining that individual's faith and they don't know what to say. Well, I think the first thing they need to do is is to write down the objection on a piece of paper. Just write down the problem that's causing you to have doubts that this professor is saying is wrong with Christianity. Okay. Now, you need to realize then, after you've written it down, that there are there's somebody in the church somewhere who can answer this question without any sweat whatsoever. It might not be you, but you're not alone. You're part of a team. And somebody on the team knows more about this than your professor does and is more qualified about that topic and doesn't bother him one bit. So there are answers out there. It's just that you don't have them. You can relax because you can't know everything. And sometimes it's good just to say, well, I know that there are people who can answer this question. You know, my professor here at Chigger Creek uh, Community College didn't come up with an argument against Christianity nobody's ever thought of. Oh my gosh, Christianity's been destroyed by, by Dr. Snodgrass here. That, that just makes no sense at all. So the, the second thing uh, uh, to do after you've written this down and recognize that somebody's answered it is if you can, try to get an appointment with the professor and be gracious in this and said, but say something like this. Professor Snodgrass, I, I respect your knowledge. Uh, I, one of the reasons I'm glad to be here as a student is because of faculty like you and others who I know you've done your homework. And so when you speak on an issue, I know that you've examined it and you know both sides of it and you've thought through where you, where you come down. Would you mind telling me what are the best arguments for a Christian view on the subject that you just criticized in class the other day, because I'm sure you looked through all the arguments against what you were claiming, 
what were two or three of the very hardest arguments for you that Christians offered to refute what you were saying? And what were some of the books that you read on, on the Christian side that I could resource and do my own research and homework on this subject? Well, based upon 52 years of experience, less than 1 to 5% of teachers will have anything to say at all. They'll look like a deer in headlights. Uh, they're not used to having being pushed back. And the fact of the matter is they've never considered the other side's view. Uh, they've never read a single book. They don't have a clue. Uh, so a good example of this has to do with evolution and intelligent design. So you, a prof just smashes uh, intelligent design. And so if when you say, well, tell me, what are two or three of the best arguments that have been offered in the literature for why evolution isn't, isn't explaining the facts, but intelligent design is, and what could I read on that side? And I will tell you, scientists will not have an answer to that. Okay, that's the second thing. The third thing is a practical application to parents. Uh, the first two were to realize somebody else has an answer to the question, even if you don't. Secondly, call the professor's bluff by asking him or her, uh, what have you read on the other side? What can I read? But then for the parents, in my book, Scientism and Secularism, in the early part of that book, I, I lay out in, in great detail what is happening to your to our children, our grandchildren, when they go to high, middle school, high school, and college, when they are not given preparation for the questions they're going to have to face? And uh, what parents need to do is to make sure that they value equipping their own children about the life of the mind. How do they do that? They can start reading a book or two themselves or do a little research on what are some of the best Christian websites uh, doing this? Uh, what are some podcasts that I could watch? And they could also go to their pastor or their youth director and say, we would like to know if there are summer camps in our area that are designed for the purpose of training students how to think worldviewishly and how to do apologetics, which is just providing answers to questions people have. Uh, we'd like to send our son or daughter to a week-long or two-week-long boot camp this summer. Do you know of one? And if you don't, would you be willing to bring someone in, or maybe you could do it, where we could actually have a week in the summer where we did nothing but for five hours a day, we taught apologetics. Those are some things parents could start doing. And I've tried to put together a list of some of those resources on the College Faith website. So if listeners would go there, they will hopefully find some helpful resources. If listeners know of other resources that I should list, I'd like to hear that because I'd like to develop a growing list of helpful resources of this sort. Uh, for you to do something like that is so crucial in today's world. And, and I just want to urge people to spread the news about this uh, resource Stan has produced so other parents or other 
college students, let's say, can ha actually access this. This is it's critical to get the word out about this sort of thing because it is available, like you pointed out. So let me ask a follow up question. How early should parents and their children begin reading some of these books together or heading off to these events or taking advantage of other resources like this? Should this begin in late high school, early high school, middle school? Does it depend on certain factors? Well, it does. I mean, it depends on what, what's available to you and so on. But I, I think I started this kind of thing with my grandchildren when they were about seven years old. What I did is there, William Lane Craig has, has written a, a, a group of, I don't remember, seven or eight books that are little booklets for kids. And it's, it's got, card, it's a little story about this bear family and the little baby, you know, bear asks the dad questions and it goes over, uh, uh, you know, how do we know God's real and blah, 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 blah at a level that's suitable for that age group. Now there are other materials out there that do the same thing. Summit Ministries uh, uh, might have resources, Google apologetic materials for elementary school students. There are ways of learning about that. The other thing is that I think surely by, uh, by middle school, you, you, you need to start doing this. And one thing you can do is to talk to the, the middle school leader at church and have a conversation with some other parents about how important this is to this group of parents. And so if you can inculcate your desire for certain things to be done, one thing that can be done is that the teacher of the middle school class can play devil's advocate. Uh, so he comes in and says, now, uh, I'm going to pretend I'm an atheist today. Now, I'm not, but so don't get upset, but I'm just going to role play. And I would really like to know why you believe there's a God. Why do you believe in God? Well, then when people give their reasons, he tries to shoot them down. And so what you want is at the end of that session for the students to think, good grief, I don't have a clue why I believe there's a God. How can I get some help on this? Well, then that whets their appetite for a very simple series, like a six to eight week series on why we believe certain basic things like God's existence, the New Testament documents are, are historically reliable and that the resurrection really happened and things of that sort. So, so that is a way of beginning to weave this in. And there may also be summer conferences for them as well. Parents can, can do this if the church won't. You can play devil's advocate with your kids. And, uh, you know, I've done that. I did that with my daughters when they were like middle school and so on. And uh, that's why they're all in therapy, you know, for a year because I, <laughs> I made them their heads explode. But, uh, but, you know, it actually inoculated them against uh, stuff they got. I'm sure. And I had a wonderful time with my son as he was in his high school years reading some of these books together. We began with the, your book, Love Your God with All Your Mind, 
and then went on to read some books in apologetics and worldview and theology that were at his level. Uh, they challenged him, but they were certainly uh, accessible to him, and he would read a chapter, maybe a half chapter, and we'd go out for ice cream or sit out back around the fire and just talk about the things that he wasn't sure about, he didn't understand, he disagreed with. It just gave us a forum that raised the right questions for him and the right ways and allowed him to talk those things through. And uh, he recently said, looking back, those were some of the most important conversations we had and uh, some of the most important things that we talked about during those years. That they really gave him a foundation for for uh, his his years in college, which he's in, in right now. Well, that's being a good father. And, and, and that's an example of exactly what I'm talking about. And you don't have to know everything there is to know to do it. If, a, if, if your son or daughter asks a question you don't know, you say, man, what a question. Okay, I don't know the answer to that. Let me get back to you in a week or two. Then you do your homework and try to get back. Um, may I recommend uh, the, the writings and the websites uh, and the podcasts of Brett Kunkel and Sean McDowell. Sean McDowell and Brett Kunkel have had years of ministry to teens about these issues and about homosexuality and all, a range of questions they're asking. In, in addition to some of the things I know Stan has put up, there are, look for these. Do your homework and you can find them. And I'll list all the resources you're mentioning in the show notes so they're easy for listeners to find after our conversation. Let me ask you another question along the same lines. Earlier, we were talking about how often well-meaning believers will discourage engaging the life of the mind for theological reasons, because somehow it's contrary to the nature of faith. But sometimes students are also discouraged from loving God with their minds for practical reasons, we might say. Uh, campus ministries sometimes will tell students that they really need to spend as much time as possible on quote-unquote spiritual activities or ministry activities, sharing their faith on campus, discipling other students. And so the message is study as little as possible to stay here at the university and, uh, and use as much time as you have to do the things that really matter for the kingdom of God. Well... Uh, that's that's a good question, Stan, and I and I think we need to to first of all um, uh, have uh, grace and uh, uh, plenty of uh, uh, mercy towards campus ministers in different groups that do that because they're well intentioned and they're 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 uh, they're misinformed and and they're actually doing things that are missing a great opportunity to disciple uh, their college uh, group, but, but, you know, they're not doing it on purpose. So there's no reason to be angry about it. The question still remains, what can I do? And I think the first thing is you've got to, you've got to be convinced in your own mind and, and try to find like-minded people, you know, talk to the other students in the movement. Uh, if you're involved in crew or navigators or intervarsity, talk to other people kind of off the record 
and and see if there you know wouldn't be a group of you that hunger for more of a reflective uh, opportunity in college and would like to you know study with some other Christians and learn about their faith and about what it means and why it's true. So um, sometimes you have to be gracious. Thank you very much for that advice, but you know different in your own heart. And that's why parents need to be sure that they understand that going to college is not first and foremost about getting a job. It's about finding a calling from God in a profession or an area of study where you can serve him in and through that area. Uh, And of course, it's also a good idea to get a job. I'm not against that by any means. But uh, it's deeper than that. And so if it's a calling, I want to learn how to think about psychology, uh, as, if that's my area, as a Christian or art. I mean, is there, it, does Christianity have anything to say about art? Well, the answer is yes. And there are books out there on this, but you have to do your own homework for it. But what a parent can do is to reinforce that value before they go to college and say, if you hear the other, if you hear that you're really here to have a ministry uh, and not to study and develop a Christian mind and to learn, just be gracious, but don't believe it. It's not true. Have a ministry, but you've got to balance that off against finding like-minded people and and reading. And, And by the way, Stan, the good news is that um, you can do this now on your own because of the websites that are available and the podcasts and all that. The online stuff is just fantastic. And so, you know, Stand a Reason and other organizations are constantly posting things that are really helpful for kids to read. So uh, I think that's what I do. I certainly wouldn't uh, get angry at any uh, campus minister for that. But I, but I wouldn't believe what they're saying. Uh, I would uh, believe part of it, uh, you know, but, but I wouldn't buy that as my whole purpose. And sometimes you have to create your own. But parents can inoculate their students before they send them to college by warning them about this attitude and saying, this is not true. You are there to minister and to learn to develop your mind as a Christian artist or Uh, whatever it might be. Well, that's really helpful, JP. And I think it's also important to remember that on most campuses, there are quite a few campus ministries. And so there are at least several that have a healthy view of the life of the mind and its relationship to spiritual growth and ministry and are encouraging students to love God with both heart and mind. And I do plan to have a series of podcasts coming up soon on choosing a healthy campus fellowship to get involved with. Rocky Christi is a student campus movement ministry that does, I think, strike a balance. So that's just the thought, but good. I hope you will uh, uh, have that program coming up here soon. Well, I hope to. But you've touched on something else, I think think our listeners would like to hear you speak more about. As a student begins into his or her major, 
how can he or she begin evaluating it from a Christian perspective? That's a very good question. And I think uh, the first thing that a student can do is to try to get clear on the Bible's view of what's real and what are some of the things we can know. So it's obvious that the Bible says that we can know moral truths. We, we can actually know some things are right and some things are wrong. That we can actually know that God exists, for example. And that the world that God created is something that we can, that we were put here to discover and know and to steward that requires us to know something about plants and so on. So if you hear anything that is assuming that we can't know reality, that somehow reality is just a kind of a creation of culture and what's real to one culture isn't real to the other, you automatically smell something wrong here. And so you want to listen very carefully to the assumptions that underlie what a professor or a textbook is claiming. So when you're reading, you might say, well, now, why should I believe that? Don't just believe something because it's in a textbook uh, or because a PhD says it. If, you, if it smells fishy to you, you, you it may actually be fishy. Uh, and so you want to trust your gut. And yes, you you've got to ask the Holy Spirit to partner with you and to give you discernment and to speak to you and prompt you when something's being said or you're reading a textbook and it's not it isn't uh, it isn't true so be sensitive to those promptings and look for the assumptions that are being made by the claim the person is making and then sit back and to say well you know how would i argue against this maybe it turns out it's true after all but but what would i say in resistance to this idea. And then I think if you could read a book on your field, you could Google Christianity and psychology or art or history and, and try to find something that maybe in the summertime or during Christmas break you could read. Uh, that, that would be of great help to you, I think. Oh, by the way, Stan, there are organizations uh, that are societies like uh, a Society of Christianity and Literature, or of uh, Christianity and the Arts. If you're majoring in something, you might try to see what those societies are and what's, what's available, and do they take student membership? And it might be a good idea to join one of those societies that's uh, in your field of major and see what you can, can, can learn about it. That's very helpful. So we're talking a lot about knowledge here, what knowledge is, why it's important, how to gain knowledge, how to respond to criticisms of what you believe to be knowledge. But in the book, you also make a distinction between knowledge and wisdom and talk about the ways they're related to one another and distinct from one another. So why is it important for both students and parents to understand the distinction and the relationship between knowledge and wisdom. Let's just say knowledge is a true belief, a belief that you have about chemical reaction, 
and it's uh, based on really good evidence enough for it to be something that you feel confident to say you know, even if you there are questions. All right. Wisdom is, I define it as a skill or know-how with regard to something. Now, let's take a chemist who's got wisdom. What that chemist has done is learned kind of a savvy, or he or she would have what was what's called by Michael Polanyi, tacit knowledge. I don't want to make this too technical, but it's just a sense of wisdom about what to do in the laboratory or about how to solve a chemical problem. Uh, after practice, you just get develop a skill in working with uh, a, a chemistry problems, let's say. And so wisdom would be applied knowledge. Uh, so you can have knowledge without wisdom, but it's hard to have wisdom without some knowledge that you're applying. And of course, uh, I would say then that one of the main things that my favorite talk show host on radio, Dennis Prager, has beaten this drum for decades, and that is that in the university, you may gain knowledge, at least in business and in the sciences, maybe not the humanities, (laughs) but uh, the university does not impart wisdom. Uh, Professors today, as a rule, do not have wisdom when it comes to life. They may be wise about what to do in a chemistry lab, fair enough. But now I'm now talking about uh, wisdom with respect to relating to God uh, and wisdom with respect to embracing that there is a God or wisdom with respect to how to cultivate a good family, how to learn to forgive people. Uh, when it's appropriate and when it isn't, what exactly is love and does love mean acceptance or does love sometimes mean admonishing uh, lovingly to correct someone? Well, I think it's the second. But the point is that you will not find, sadly, wisdom in the university uh, for life and of the things that matter most to us. It used to be in the late 1800s up until around 1915, 1920, the universities place great emphasis on life wisdom conveyed in the classroom, believe it or not. But then that went the way of the dodo and it's dropped out for various reasons. So here's the application. You have to develop ears to hear when a professor is passed from providing knowledge of something to providing his own wisdom opinions. And when a professor starts giving you his or her opinions about how to relate to racism or, you know, sexuality and that sort of thing, you need to realize that now this person is no longer in their field of expertise. They are not speaking as professors. They are now lay people. They're no better than I am. And in fact, I'll bet you that they don't have a source of wisdom. Like when a person starts talking about sexual issues to me, and they have a view of sexual practices that scripture would clearly say are deviant. I always ask them, I said, do you mind telling me from where do you get your sexual ethics? 
Where does it come from? They don't think about those questions. For me, uh, my sexual ethic comes from two sources, the Bible and the natural moral law, which is uh, uh, the existence of objective morality that comes from God, but you don't have to acknowledge God, that we can all know without scripture. So, I mean, what in Romans, Paul says that what's wrong with homosexuality is not that it violates a commandment of scripture. Instead, it violates the nature by which we were made to function properly. And you can observe that by looking at body parts. You can understand that certain parts fit together and were designed to, and others weren't designed to fit together. So the point I'm simply making is that you want to be very, very careful to recognize that, that university professors don't have wisdom anymore. And when they start hobby horsing it, then you, they're, they're speaking out of their heads. They, they don't have any authority on this and don't listen to them. Don't look to them for wisdom. Yes, that was certainly my experience as an undergraduate student at a public university, but there were a few exceptions. And those exceptions were, by and large, Christian professors on campus. And I found that when I went to them with a question about knowledge, they were not only able to help me with that, but they could tie that into wisdom and helping me understand how to live well. Because they were coming from the Christian worldview, and they realized it wasn't just about having knowledge and skill, but it was the ability to take that knowledge and apply it well and live in ways that cause one to flourish and promote other flourishing. So I really benefited from those professors who could relate knowledge to wisdom, but I agree they were few and far between. Well, and, and your point is so important that it has a real implication, and that is that when a, a student goes to college, one of the things they ought to do early on is try to see if they can find out who are the Christian professors on campus. And there, there surely are ways to, to, to discover that. There may be a faculty group Bible study or something, but it's nice to know who are your brothers and sisters on the faculty, because quite frankly, if you're hurting and in need of some just older wisdom, they, they, I will tell you as a professor myself, it's an honor, even though they're busy, they're not too busy to have an office hour appointment with you and to help you, and they, they would be delighted to do it. So don't think that you're just this lowly freshman or sophomore, and there are these big professors don't have time for you. That is not the way a Christian professor relates to life. They're here to, to especially serve their brothers and sisters, though they want to serve the whole community as well. So that is such a good point. Well, that's a good word, and I appreciate you saying that. As a distinguished professor that many look up to, and would tend to be hesitant to come to hearing you say that and uh, be honest about the way I think most professors welcome conversations with students, especially Christian students who have questions about the faith or spiritual growth during their university years, will be a, a great encouragement to many. Well, JP, this has been a great conversation. As we wrap up, what else needs to be said? What are things I haven't asked about you'd like to make sure is part of this conversation? A major point of concern is the idea today that 
the hard sciences are by far the very best way that we have of knowing reality, maybe the only way of knowing reality. And so what we really do need to do is listen to what the scientists are saying. And if that requires us to revise our theological or biblical ideas, you know, I'm sorry, but you just have to do that. And I want parents and students to respect science, but not treat it as inerrant and as an authority that can't be wrong. There are other ways of knowing besides the methods used in physics and chemistry. Well, just because you can't prove something scientifically, that doesn't mean you can't know it. There are all kinds of different ways of knowing things. Uh, mathematical knowledge is one thing. Moral knowledge is another. Historical knowledge, knowledge in chemistry, art. These are different. And uh, I would just say that you don't want to treat science as this set of uh, pronunciations that can't be questioned. Just be on the lookout. For that. And then the other thing would be that if, uh, if a person is advancing a form of relativism, uh, where kind of a, there is no real truth, whatever's true for you is your truth and I have my truth, pay very careful attention to whether those statements are self-refuting. Sometimes they are, and that means that like the statement, there are no sentences longer than three words, makes itself false. Certain claims about everything's relative are, are themselves meant to be non-relative. They're meant to be objectively true statements. So just pay attention for that, and that would be a little tool you could use. Oh, that's great. So where can listeners go for more information? You've mentioned a few resources. They will be in the show notes. Any other resources you want to mention that you think would be especially helpful to students or their parents concerning these issues? Well, I do think... The Discovery Institute up in Seattle, Washington, is a very good resource for uh, science religion issues. Um, and I do think some of the websites that I've mentioned, uh, along with what you're doing here, uh, are very important. Uh, William Lane Craig's uh, uh, got a website that is Reasonable Faith, and it would be a good one to access. But uh, but. Uh, I guess to close, let me just give you hope, to, uh, my dear listeners here, that there really are things out there for you. They really are, and they're not going to take two days to read them. Sometimes they have very simple kind of downloads that can be of great help if you're writing a paper or if you just have a question about something. Keep looking for those. Stan's already got the list. He's going to be developing it. Go to his website, find out what some of these are, and, and use them. Uh, that's part of your calling for being a college student. Well, JP, thanks. I really enjoyed this conversation, and thank you so much for your service for so many years to the kingdom in the world of academia and uh, of ideas. And I appreciate you taking time to be on the show. Well, back at you, Stan. I appreciate your work, too. That brings us to the end of this inaugural edition of the College Faith Podcast. My guest today was Dr. J.P. Moreland discussing his book, Love Your God with All Your Mind, The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul. 
I hope this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education helps you or someone you love flourish in both heart and mind during the university years. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page and follow me on Twitter at Stan W. Wallace. And please visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to learn how you can be a part of creating lasting change in higher education worldwide. If you haven't done so already, I would greatly appreciate your review of this show at Apple Podcast or Stitcher. That helps a lot. And finally, I encourage you to pass this show on to your friends or others you think may benefit from hearing our conversation. So until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind.